0: section five of edward the black prince by louise creighton this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter five chivalry part one the victories in france had brought great wealth and prosperity into england the booty won from france was spread throughout the land and the matrons of england clothed themselves in the garments of the matrons of france the result was not altogether beneficial. This increased wealth brought with it also a change in the simplicity of English manners. Wearing the more extravagant dress of the French, sleeping on their feather beds, clothing themselves in their rich furs, the people's taste grew more extravagant. They acquired a love for fine clothes, for foolish fashions and foppery of all kinds, and in this extravagance, the clergy rivaled the laity. There was also an increased love of pageantry and dissipation, in which the people were encouraged by the king. Tournaments were so frequent that Edward had to pass an enactment forbidding them to be held without royal permission. Yet he himself caused nineteen to be held between October 1347 and May 1348, many of which lasted more than a fortnight the life of the court and the nobles was nothing but a ceaseless round of gaieties and festivities. It was at one of these tournaments that Edward III established the great order of the garter, which continues to this day and may be looked upon as a heritage left to us by the chivalric spirit of the Middle Ages. Chivalry was a thing of French creation and throve naturally on French soil. It is principally the French and Provençal troubadours, who have celebrated it by their song. In England it never developed so freely. It seemed like a thing imported, foreign in its very nature to English simplicity and English bluntness. Still, throughout the Middle Ages, the chivalric spirit ruled supreme all over Europe, in England and France alike. When chivalry ceased to be an enthusiasm, it became a fashion and lingered on as a fashion till cervantes heaped ridicule upon it in his don quixote till its absurdities became so manifest that it faded away amid the scorn and laughter of mankind edward the third aimed at being a type of fashionable knighthood in his day chivalry had not yet become an absurdity it had lost much of its early simplicity and elevation but still in the black prince and some of his knights such as Sir John Chandos, Sir Walter Manny, and Sir James Audley, we find all the nobleness of early chivalry. Let us look a little closer at this chivalry and see what it meant and what was the ideal which it held up to its followers. It had no artificial origin but sprang up as a natural outcome of feudalism and so of early Teutonic manners. A feudal vassal owed certain definite duties to his superior. Knighthood was the formal act by which the fitness of a young man to take upon him these duties was recognized, and he was declared worthy to enter the rank of warriors. It was to the Crusades that chivalry owed its religious character. By taking part in the Crusades, the knight could best find a field in which he might give free play to all the noble sentiments which animated him. And if the knight was to fight for Christ, It was right that religion should take under her control the important act which initiated a young man into the rank of knighthood. The education of a future knight began at the age of seven. It was the custom for the sons of gentlemen to be brought up in the castles of the nobles where first they acted as pages, attending upon the lords and ladies. Afterwards they were advanced at the age of fourteen to the rank of squires and waited upon their lords both at home and abroad they aided in their toilet, carved before them at table, and riveted their armour as they attended them to the tournament or the battle. Attention was paid to their education in all things connected with the management of arms or of horses. They were taught above all to be courteous to ladies, to be respectful and obedient to their superiors. Thus bred up in the atmosphere of chivalry they were fit and eager when manhood came to be raised to the dignity of knighthood this was accompanied by many solemn ceremonies the squire who was to be knighted was first made to lay aside his clothes and enter a bath the symbol of purification on coming out he was clothed with a white garment the symbol of purity next in a red robe the symbol of the blood he was bound to shed in the service of the faith and lastly in a close black coat the symbol of the death which awaited him He then spent the next twenty-four hours in fasting. At evening he entered the church or chapel and passed the night in prayers. In the morning he confessed and received absolution, and then partook of the communion. He was next present at the Mass of the Holy Ghost, and sometimes listened to a sermon on the duties of knighthood. Then, advancing to the altar with the sword of a knight hanging from his neck, he knelt before the priest, who took the sword and blessed it, and then returned it to him after this he went and knelt before the noble who was to arm him knight who was called his godfather before him he swore to maintain the right to fight for the faith to serve his sovereign prince to protect the weak and oppressed above all to be the champion of women to obey his superiors to honour his companions to keep faith with all the world to forswear all treason and avarice to acknowledge as his only aims glory and virtue. When he had taken his oath, knights and ladies advanced to clothe him in his new armor, the spurs, the coat of mail, the cuirass, and the gauntlets, and to gird on his sword. Then his godfather struck him three blows with the flat of his sword, saying, In the name of God, of St. Michael, and of St. George, I dub thee knight. The young knight then seized his helmet and sprang upon his horse brandishing his lance and rode out to show himself to the crowd outside the church there was always great feasting and joy when the eldest son was knighted his father gathered round him all his vassals who owed him a money contribution on this joyous occasion they feasted together in the great hall of the castle the lord himself was seated at the high table on the dais at one end of the hall but with his face turned toward the hall that all might see him during the feast the guests were entertained with the performances of jesters tumblers and jugglers who formed part of all the great households of that time or they listened to the romances of the troubadours so amidst general rejoicings the young man entered on his new career the ideal of perfect knighthood held before him was noble and exalted and we cannot doubt that it fired him with enthusiasm and inspired him to do noble deeds in an age of rough and rude manners when the majority of men were wanting in all refinement and culture, when men for the most part were animated only by low and selfish aims, when the light shed around by religion was as yet only feeble and fitful, it was a great thing to have such an ideal as this held up before men. In the Crusades the knight found his true field. By them the use of the sword was sanctified, and the warrior could find joy in feats of arms whilst fighting for Christ, and as the crusade sanctified the warlike feats of the knight, his worship of the virgin sanctified that devotion to the ladies which was so distinguishing a feature of chivalry. God and the ladies was the motto of every true knight. He went both to tournament and to battle with his lady's badge upon his arm, and thoughts of her nerved him to deeds of valor. His honor was the dearest thing in a knight's eyes, and from this sprang his scrupulous fidelity to his word once pledged. As a lover he must be faithful to the lady he served, as a vassal he must be faithful to his lord. A promise once given even to an enemy must never be broken. During the French wars of Edward III we hear often of knights being released on their word to raise the money required for their ransom and returning of their own accord to captivity if they could not raise this money. Courtesy was another distinguishing feature of chivalry, by this was meant true courtesy springing from the heart and showing itself in modesty consideration for others self-denial as well as in matters of outward gesture and punctilio courtesy was shown as much to foe as to friend and did much towards softening the ferocity of war a true knight must also be liberal he must be inspired with an active sense of justice and a burning indignation of wrong but whilst extending the sympathy of a knight to all his companions in knighthood, whether friend or foe, chivalry narrowed his sympathy to those of his own class. Princes did their utmost to encourage chivalry, to provide tournaments where their knights might exhibit their valour, and to cover them with every possible distinction, but while caring for the knights they forgot the people. The spirit of chivalry was a class spirit, and narrowing in its tendency. It recognized neither the rights nor the interests of the people, and when once the people had grown strong enough to assert their rights and make their importance felt, the doom of chivalry was sealed. It continued to exist with all its pageantry long after its real life and spirit was dead. Perhaps it was never so magnificent in its outward show as it was during the reign of Edward III, when its decay had already begun. Never had there been so many and such splendid tournaments at the English court as now after the Battle of Crecy. It is uncertain at which of these Edward founded the Order of the Garter, but it is known to have been in existence in 1348. Most probably it was founded at the great tournament held at Eltham in 1347. Ever since 1344, when edward had made a round table at windsor in imitation of the traditionary round table of king arthur he had been desirous of establishing a new order of knighthood this desire was ripened into fulfilment by the prosperous condition of the country after the battle of Crécy. a trivial incident decided the motto and badge which he should adopt for the new order one of the ladies of the court by some supposed to be queen philippa herself by others the countess of salisbury dropped her garter. Whilst the courtiers looked at one another and smiled, shrugging their shoulders as they pointed to the garter on the floor, Edward, with the gallantry of a true knight, picked it up, and handing it to the lady, said, Oni soit qui mal y pense, shame to him who thinks evil. As he did so, the thought flashed through his mind that here was the badge and the motto for his new order. The order was established with great pomp and ceremony. St. George was instituted as its patron saint. A chapel to St. George was ordered to be built at Windsor, as chapel for the order. There each of the twenty-five knights who were to be honoured with the garter was to have his appointed stall, over which during his lifetime his helmet and sword were to hang. There all the knights were to assemble, if it were in any way possible, on the eve of St. George's Day. Then, sitting each in his stall, they were to hear mass, On St. George's Day a great tournament and banquet was to be held. On the day following a requiem was to be sung for the souls of the faithful deceased. No knight of the order was ever to pass near Windsor without coming to the chapel, and there was to put on his mantle and hear mass. Edward made a foundation at the chapel of thirteen secular canons and thirteen vicars, and also of twenty-six veteran knights, who were to be maintained there and were to serve god continually in prayer the kings of england were to be perpetual sovereigns of the order there were twenty-five knights-founders amongst whom was of course the black prince with his principal knights chandos sir james audley and the Captal de Busch. they were nearly all young men four of them were even under twenty and ten under thirty edward the third himself was only thirty-five at the first feast we read that all these founders together with the king were clothed in gowns of russet powdered with blue garters wearing like garters also on their right legs and mantles of blue with the scutcheons of st george bareheaded and in this apparel they heard mass which was celebrated by simon islip archbishop of canterbury and afterwards went to the feast setting themselves orderly at the table then followed splendid tournaments at which there were two kinds of conflicts. In the tournaments proper the knights divided themselves into parties and one party fought against another. There were also jousts or conflicts between two knights. These were generally held in honour of the ladies who presided as judges over them. The combatants used spears without heads of iron. Their object was to strike their opponent upon the front of his helmet, so as to beat him backwards upon his horse or else to break his spear though the tournaments were only looked upon as sport they were often attended with great danger and the knights engaged in the combat were not seldom severely wounded and even killed but no thought of this danger incurred without good reason diminished in the least the enthusiasm for them they were attended with every possible kind of magnificence the lists within which the combatants were to fight were superbly decorated and were surrounded by pavilions belonging to the champions and ornamented with their arms and banners. Scaffolds were erected for the noble spectators, both lords and ladies, those upon which the royal family sat were hung with tapestry and embroideries of gold and silver. Every spectator was decked in the most sumptuous manner. Not only the knights themselves, but their horses, their pages, and the heralds were clothed in costly and glittering apparel the clanging of trumpets, the shouts of the beholders, the cries of the heralds increased the excitement of the fray. When the tournament was over, the combatants retired to their pavilions to refresh themselves after the fight and remove their heavy armour, the weight of which was almost unbearable. In the evening they met together with the nobles and ladies who had been spectators of the sport, and the time was passed in feasting, dancing, and singing. The heralds named those who had fought best on both sides. The ladies chose a name for each party, and the champions received the rewards of their merit from the hands of two young and noble maidens. End of section five.